I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Charlene and I enjoy mysteries. Uh, we enjoy certain detective mystery shows and different things like that. One of our little hobbies is when we're watching some sort of a mystery or something, we try to interact with the content. We want to figure out who did it before they show us who did it. It's just kind of a thing we do. And it's interesting in watching all of those, uh, we've learned that a good detective uh, examines all the evidence and really does allow the evidence to take them wherever it leads. <clears throat> and in some of those shows, there's a good trial attorney. And a good trial attorney is able to take the evidence and to present it in such a way that the jury can hear the evidence, can understand the evidence, and then can make a reasonable decision. In the late 20th century, the idea of evidence was really used so much to help people understand who Jesus was. I still have a book on my shelf that calls The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And that was the idea in the late 20th century is about if people see the evidence, if they see the evidence for the veracity of the Word of God, if they see the evidence for who Jesus was, if they see the evidence, they will respond. Some of you may a few years ago have picked up the book The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel in which he, from his legal background, presents so much evidence about who Jesus was. And that really worked for some, but as the years have gone on, now people are saying, well, it's not just about the evidence. Evidence can be twisted. I need the experience. I need some experience to help me understand. And, and boy, experience is a big word today. Experience, feeling, sensing, being able to objectively realize something. I see, I see the word experience being used in marketing. I think one time I told you about the first time I walked into an office supply store quite a few years ago, and I found the markers I was looking for, and I walked up to, the, to check out, and the, the gal at the, the register said, how was your shopping experience today? Um, good. <laughs> what do you, how do you answer that question? I remember listening on the radio and they would be advertising the Chicago Cubs, come and enjoy the Wrigley experience. Well, I've been to Wrigley. Overpriced food, overpriced drinks, uncomfortable seats. Thank you very much. And potentially a loss. Uh, but people talk about experience. We, we have experience at athletic events. And you can even now find literature on how to create a worship experience. None of that's bad. None of that's wrong. It just is. But when it comes to matters of faith, evidence and experience, no matter how sound, no matter how engaging, are no substitutes for faith. 
You see, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophet of Zechariah, behold, your king comes gentle and riding on a donkey, that was an experience. With people lining the road, coming down from the Mount of Olives, waving palm branches, laying their cloaks on the ground so the donkey would walk over them, that was an experience. It was a scene to behold. That was one to tell the grandkids someday. It was an experience that had been preceded by a lot of evidence. Evidence, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000, healing the lame, healing lepers, raising people from the dead, culminating with raising Lazarus from the dead, recorded in John 11. And yet in just the course of five days, in just the course of five days, all of that would be turned completely around. You see, it became very evident that all of the evidence and all of the experiences just weren't enough. Because evidence and experience do not always lead to faith decisions. Faith decisions are a matter of the heart. Regardless of the evidence and the experience, one must still choose to believe, especially when it comes to faith in Christ. Now, as you read through the Gospels, it becomes very evident that during those days between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion, Jesus used almost every moment he could to speak directly to his, his opponents to challenge and prepare his followers, to stir and sometimes confound the crowds. The emphasis was on more than just evidence and experience. Jesus was challenging their faith. Matthew's gospel, the triumphal entry, begins as we've already heard read this morning in chapter 21. Jesus allows himself to be presented as the coming king riding triumphantly into Jerusalem, going into the temple and cleansing it. it the, the, what had happened is they had taken the worship experience and turned it into an underhanded way of making more money. And Jesus said, that's not what it's about. And for the second time in his ministry, he goes and he cleans out the temple and turns over the tables of the money changers. We saw in the reading in Matthew the interaction with the religious leaders. They were, frankly, incensed that Jesus would put on such a public display. In, in a minute, we'll talk about the two groups that were there. There were the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. And just very quickly, Sadducees were a uh, group of religious leaders who were housed mainly in Jerusalem they were very much about being not only religious but political. Uh, the high priest was a Sadducee and most likely was appointed to his position by King Herod. And so for them, keeping peace with Rome was paramount because it kept them in a position of authority. The Pharisees typically were around the outer areas in Galilee and different places. And they were more about following the law a little bit more than the Sadducees. We know that the Sadducees did not believe there was a resurrection coming, but the Pharisees did. And yet together they come together, these kind of people that are on opposite sides theologically, and they are incensed that Jesus would allow himself to be presented as a king. Why? 
this, we want a political leader, we want a military leader, but we want to do it in our way and we want to pick him and this just doesn't fit our notions and it could cause Rome to say, hey, there's an uprising here that we need to quelch. And so they are incensed. Tell the children to stop singing. Jesus speaks in parables. We, we read in Matthew that he, he healed some people. We see one other miracle. It's a, a whole thing with a fig tree and cursing the branches of a fig tree to show the nation and to show the disciples that the nation showed all the promise of fruit but had nothing really there. And Jesus gets into several debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They want to ask him questions. Uh, who, who should we pay taxes to? What happens to somebody in the resurrection if this woman marries a man and he dies and she marries his brother, lover at marriage, and he dies, and all, the, and all of a sudden she's married seven brothers and they've all died, and now the resurrection, who's, whose husband is her? Let's answer that for us. And Jesus answers the question and reminds them that they don't even know the scriptures because in the resurrection we'll be like the angels. And so he, he ties, he, he responds. And in fact, we have in our passage this morning the, the, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees asking these questions. I kind of see it in my mind's eye. If you've ever seen the, the game show Family Feud, you know, and there's these two families and they're asking these, answering these questions. And while one family is answering the questions, the others over here huddled up thinking what they're going to answer if they don't get it. And I see the, you know, the Sadducees are over here huddled up saying, okay, let's ask him about this marriage thing and the resurrection. And the Pharisees are over here listening to that and then they huddle up. Hey, let's ask him about what the greatest commandment is. And so here we have it. The, well, let's pick it up in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the Pharisees come together and they ask him a question, a question that was pretty common in the day, a question that, if you go back to Luke 10, was already asked and answered in a very powerful way, but most likely the ones asking the question here in Matthew on that last week of Jesus' earthly life were not at the location where it had been asked in Luke, where he had told the parable. So they ask it again, and, and the idea was, what's the essence of the law? 
You see, the Mosaic law, not adding all the stuff the Pharisees added to it, just the basic Mosaic law consisted of around 613 commands. And so the concern was, if we were to take the law of Moses and boil it down into its essence, what would that be? You see, and the purpose of these questions was to try to find a way to get Jesus to be tied up in some kind of a logical or theological knot or to say something that they could say, ah, 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 see, he's wrong. It's always hard to ask the person who wrote the law to try to explain the law because they know what they wrote. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you know, the Godhead inspired Moses to write the law. So Jesus does what he did before. He quotes what's called by the Hebrews the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The first word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, is Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And a reverent Jew would actually recite this passage twice a day. It's this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the next verses that follow that in Deuteronomy remind them that this isn't just something to quote. You're to teach this to your children as you walk in the way, as you sit down, as you lie down. This was to be the essence of what their children were taught. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus said, that's, that's the first command. But what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me today? What does it mean to love God with all my being? How can I do that? And let me just give you a very simple reminder. We are to love God wholly. Not holy as in holy, 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 but holy completely. Love God wholly. What does it mean to love God wholly? What does it mean to love God with all my being? You see, in English, we have one word for love. It's the word love. We use it for everything. I love pizza. I love the Kansas University Jayhawks, national champions in the NCAA men's division. I love my wife. I love her in a far different way than I love pizza. But I only have one word to use. We use it for everything. In the Greek and that, that we have Matthew in here, there were actually four different words for love. One meant the affection of a parent to a child. There was one that meant that sensual love, that romantic love. There, there was one that meant brotherly love or friendship. And that would have been the word phileo. We get the word Philadelphia from that, which my friends from Philadelphia say, well, it's supposed to be the city of brotherly love, but it's actually the city of brotherly shove. But that's where we get, you know, Philadelphia comes from that. And then we get the word that is often used synonymously with 
phileo, and it's the word that you've often heard use the word agape. Sometimes people say that's the highest form of love, but in reality, it's, it's just another expression of love. And sometimes the word agape, that kind of love, is the word that is kind of talked about as the love that's love of choice, love of unconditionality. Oftentimes when it's used when it's referred to God's relationship to us and our relationship to him. So in a sense, Jesus is saying to his questioners that the most important command of the law was to choose to love God with every part of your being. Heart, soul, mind. How much do you and I really love God? Don't answer that question, just let it sink in. See, to love God, heart, soul, and mind is taking the various aspects of who we are as human beings and, and combining them. The, the heart in this context is the, not the beating organ right here in my chest. The heart in this context is my rational functioning, my ability to choose, my ability to look at a situation, size up the situation, and make a decision about what I'm going to do in that situation. The idea of loving God with my mind is, is the idea of uh, my thinking and my intelligence. That's the, 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 the rational part, or the, the, the thought processes. And the idea of loving God with my strength is my, uh, uh, Jesus says heart, soul, and mind. So soul would be that from the depth of my feeling and emotions. We get our word psychology from the word soul. And so, you know, the depths of who I am, I love God. The, the, the thinking processes I have, my intelligence, I love God. The Deuteronomy passage says heart, soul, and strength with my physical ability. With everything I am, it is to be directed in loving God. Everything about me, who I am, what I do is centered on my love for God. And my expression of that love is best seen in my obedience to God's standards and God's morals. How do you do that, Pastor Scott? How do we live in an active expression of God's love? Well, one, none of us do this perfectly. And that really is the fact, a testament to God's amazing grace that I don't love him perfectly. I don't always love him with heart, soul, strength. I don't always love him with my full being, and yet he loves me anyway. That's his grace. And I get hesitant to give you a list because typically when we get a list, we check off the list and say, oh, I'm good. And the fact is, it's a daily reality of reflecting on who God is. Let me offer a few suggestions. Part of what it means to love God with all my beings me, being means I take the time on a regular basis and express my love to him. And Charlene and I are celebrating 41 years of marriage this next May. I remember a teacher in middle school who one day told us about his father. And his father was one of these guys that never expressed his emotion. 
one day, years in, this man's mother asked his dad, Honey, do you love me? Why don't you ever say it? I told you I loved you on the day we got married, and it hasn't changed. No. No, you know what? It's important to express your love daily to someone that you love on a regular basis, to say, I love you, for no reason other than to say, I love you. I want you to know that. Do we ever tell God that we love him? Ever tell Jesus you love him? You ever tell the Holy Spirit that you love him? You express your love to somebody. The other thing that happens in, in any relationship is you talk about how can we grow in our relationship. And I think that's important in our relationship with God. Ask God to show you where you need to change. You know, I've told you time and again that, that prayer that we ought to pray on a regular basis is, Lord, change me. Well, when you pray that prayer and shows you where to change, then probably ought to change in that area. You know, ask God to show you where you need to be more loving, what you need to kind of move out of your life. There was an old story. It was actually a little booklet years ago. It was entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. And it was this whole story of this guy telling this little allegory of, of accepting Jesus Christ into his life, believing that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, and now Jesus moved into his heart. And, and they would have great fellowship and everything, but then life got busy and he would rush out the house and Jesus would still be sitting there in the morning by the fireplace just waiting for him. And then, you know, he moved into the kitchen and there were things that needed to change. And every little room of his heart, you know, something needed to change. And one day, Jesus was standing at the top of the stair landing and standing there looking at a closet door. And he said, something smells in there. And the guy, oh, that's, that's mine. No, no, it's all mine. And, and it's just that idea, if you ask Jesus, how do you want me to change? He is going to be faithful to show you that. And we ought to be doing that because as we grow in relationship, we change. I would challenge you in a loving relationship with God, learn what it means to listen. Listen as you read God's word. Listen to the wise voices God places into your life. Learn what it means to let God guide you. In small things and in great things. And one of the ways that that, one of the things that that looks like is I don't make major life decisions based on what I've always wanted to do or based on what I've always dreamed of doing or where I've always dreamed of going or whatever's most convenient at the time. If I truly love someone and I know that that person is deeply involved in my life and that they care most about my best interest, I will consult them. I will involve them in the decision and I will listen to what they say. Loving someone holy, loving God holy means to talk to him. And there is no secret code language. Prayer is just talking to God, telling him what's on your heart, telling him how you feel, telling him where you struggle, and in that conversation, once again listening. But for Jesus, that's only half the picture. Love God wholly. That's only half the picture. 
And that's what he said to these people. This is the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. If you do that, you will be on your way. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. If you want to be obedient to the full Mosaic law, it's shown in loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. I would summarize it this way. Love others fully. That same choice of love needs to be extended to my neighbors. Jesus drew from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 as the foundation of the second command. Leviticus 19 is actually a reiteration of many of the commands, and it was not uncommon. It was not something like his listeners would have gone, now where'd you get that? Because they would have known exactly where he got that. And Leviticus 19 begins in verse 1 with this. Be holy, for I am holy, I the the Lord your God am holy. Be holy, because I the Lord your God am holy. What does holiness look like? It looks like Leviticus 19. As a nation and a people and individuals who live their lives by divine standards and not by the whims of the culture. The overall emphasis is this is how a God-based faith community will operate. And God requires us to do our best to imitate him. Be holy does not mean to be perfect. The word holy does not mean perfect. It means set apart. This new nation that God was building in Leviticus was to be set apart. They were to be an example to the surrounding nations how God worked in the life of a faith community. We'll see in the next few weeks as we look through what's called the minor prophets, they didn't do a good job. But we don't have to follow their example. We can learn from it. Uh, The the Hebrew word for neighbor is a word that has a range from both a friend to a mere acquaintance to a fellow citizen. It can be a close friend to just somebody along the way. And the problem was that by the time we get to Matthew 22, that definition of neighbor, that broad definition of neighbor, had been narrowed down to being only a fellow Jew and only a fellow Jew who followed the things that I say to follow as a Pharisee, who obeys my interpretation of the law. Jesus continually taught against that reality in the New Testament. And in fact, in the earlier discussion of this that shows up in Luke 10, the, the story he told to help them see what it what meant to love their neighbor was the story that we know as the Good Samaritan. And the, the Samaritan was hated by the Jews. They could not abide the Samaritans. In fact, good Jew would not even walk through Samaria. They would take the longer route around it when they were going from Jerusalem to Galilee. And it was the good Samaritan who showed kindness and grace and mercy to someone who had been beaten up when the, the, the Levite and the priest walked by and wouldn't even touch them. And, and if you'll remember that story when Jesus said to the, the lawyer who asked him the question, he said, tell me, who was the neighbor to the 
this man. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He said the one who showed mercy. And, and what I gather from that is everybody is my neighbor. Every person who crosses my path is my neighbor. And so we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And someone will go, oh, Pastor Scott, you don't understand my background. I don't love myself. The fact of the matter is we all do. Even if we've had a hard background, and, and I, I hurt for that, and I've, I've dealt with people with that, but we all do. How do you know? Because if I walk up to you, and I ball up my fist, and I go to hit you in the face, what are you going to do? You're not going to stand there and take it. You're going to, because you protect yourself. And we all spend a little bit of time today at least making sure the hair was, well, not all of us, but many of us spend a little bit of time today making sure the hair was combed and things were right. Love our neighbors ourselves. What's that mean? Well, do you like to be respected? So does your neighbor. And he deserves it. Do you like to be treated justly? So does your neighbor. And she deserves it. Do you like honesty? So does your neighbor. And he deserves it. Do you deserve a fair wage for the work that you do? So does your neighbor, and she deserves it. Does your disabled loved one deserve to be treated kindly with dignity and respect? So does your disabled neighbor, and he deserves it. Do you want your reputation to be guarded? So does your neighbor, and she deserves it. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't have to be grand sweeping gestures. It's simply treating every person, regardless of any adjective I could add, race, ethnicity, sexual identity, creed, religion, etc., etc., treating each person with the dignity and respect due a fellow creature made in the image of God. Would you just think for a minute of the radical change we could make one person at a time if we were truly committed to loving God with every fiber of our being and loving our neighbors ourselves? Think of the attractiveness of the good news of Jesus Christ because the good news of Jesus Christ is not just in how well you and I can articulate and defend a theological position. The good news of Jesus Christ is best evidenced in the way that we model loving God and loving others. Now Jesus has been tested in a variety of ways. And so he turns the table quickly. He turns the table and it's important to understand something. Jesus isn't trying to trap or humiliate or put down the Pharisees. What Jesus wants more than anything else that they would see him for who he is and give careful thought to how he fulfills what they have studied all their lives. Jesus has just summarized the law and the prophets. And part of that is loving your neighbors yourself. Jesus loved the Pharisees. Jesus loved the Sadducees. And I think sometimes in the way that we present it, we kind of present it like he didn't. Like he wanted to get them, to stick it to them. 
And I know he says in chapter 23 some very harsh things, but I'm going to tell you, if you love somebody, then you care enough to confront somebody so that they can change their ways. And that's really what Matthew 23 is about, although it's very harsh and very straightforward. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He loved them so much, he did not want to see them to go, going down a path that would lead them deeper into religiosity and further from God. So he addresses their assumptions regarding the Messiah. And what he's going to do is leave them with this thought. We choose faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to choose to put their faith in who he was. So he asked them a similar question that he asked the disciples back in chapter 16. He says, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? What do you think about him? And they respond, the son of David, they replied. And that's not wrong. The Messiah was to come from the line of David and so would ultimately be the son of David. I've been doing some dabbling in my family background. I actually have this long sheet. It's like a legal size or a little longer, and it's handwritten. I don't know which one of my dad's sisters hand wrote it, and it's my dad's genealogy back as far as, as they can take it. And there's some really cool stuff in there, some stuff I didn't realize. I actually have a relative whose first name was Coffee. What a great name. I wish I would have thought of that. One of my kids could have been Coffee Howington. You know, how great is that? Uh, but, you know, you go back on my, my dad's side and, and you go back to my grandpa, uh, Gard. His name was Gardner. Everybody called him Gard. And his grandpa was John. And his, or his, and his dad was John. And his dad was Jim. So you could say, I am the son of Jim Howington. Now, Jim was born in the early, early 1800s. So it's not like I'm you know, his boy, but I'm his son because I'm his descendant. And that's what they're saying. He's the son of David. He's the descendant of David. He's the direct descendant of David. And, and we noticed a few weeks ago that when that term was used, it carried with it political and military overtimes. They want overtones. They wanted this one to come and overthrow the Roman government. Jesus doesn't debate them. He just responds with a second question that comes directly out of the 110th Psalm. If you were with us last fall when we went through Christ in the Old Testament, we spent some time in Psalm 110. We realized it's one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. And it's a psalm that gives a clear declaration of the Messiah. The Pharisees would have not been in disagreement with Jesus when he says, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? You see, Jesus is saying when David wrote, when he wrote the Psalms, we understand now that he was born along by the Holy Spirit. And they're going, yeah, we, we agree with that. David wrote the Psalms. David was inspired by God. They would totally agree with that. And so they would have agreed to the, that David is speaking here of the Messiah. And he quotes Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Let me recite that again with some expansion. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, 
Sit at my right hand, the place of messianic authority and deity, until I put your enemies under your feet, in other words, give you complete victory. The term Lord is not just a term of honor, it's a term of theological significance here. And the question is, how can David's son be his Lord? Or, let me say it another way, how can David's son be God? How can the son of David be his offspring and his Lord at the same time? And the only answer is that it is only possible that the son of David is truly the son of God, the God-man, fully human and fully divine. Notice what happens. Jesus said, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions. I think maybe it might be better to say no one wanted to say a word. You see, I think the reason they stopped asking him questions is because they were not willing to bring themselves to put their faith in what he was saying. Jesus had repeatedly given them all the evidence they needed, and they repeatedly made a conscious choice to not put their faith in him. The people surrounding Jesus that week had experienced so much. They had already seen him do so many things. Some had even, uh, some, even some of the religious leaders were standing there when he called Lazarus from the grave after Lazarus had been in that cave for four days dead. They were there. Uh, you could go on and on about the ways that he helped others and stepped into the lives. They were not short on experience. But experience doesn't last. <laughs> last Monday night, I was celebrating as my Kansas Jayhawks won the Nationals Championship. You know, on Tuesday, it was kind of done. I was, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy. But I had stuff to do. I couldn't live on that experience. Experience doesn't last. I think the message for you and me today is so simple. Love God wholly. Love your neighbor fully. Choose faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the evidence and all the experiences you and I could ever have are never a substitute for believing Jesus. Some people will tell you they're not going to believe until they see the evidence. Others will tell you they're not going to believe until they, until they experience the evidence. I think the Bible in this brief interchange just reminds us that true seeing is believing. Who do you believe on Palm Sunday? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these simple words with deep meaning, that Jesus responded and that he asked. And really it comes down for all of us to answer the question, who do I believe? Who do I believe on this Palm Sunday? And Lord, we can only answer that question for ourselves. May this be a day in which we truly reflect our faith in you as we look forward to celebrating your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.